0: You turn to John chapter 21 in your Bibles, John 21, and get these fellows' attention as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, they will get one to you so that you can follow along as we look at John 21 in our series through the Gospel of John, the title of which is Meet Your Maker. And if you've turned there, you can see that it is the final chapter in the Gospel of John, so we are just about finished. Today and next week, and you will have endured to the end, our series through the Gospel of John. It's graduation season. Many parents and many teachers are experiencing a kind of mixture between relief and fear. They're experiencing relief because they finally finished the course. They've shepherded along those who've been entrusted to their care for many years. But there's a bit of anxiety that goes with it as well. We wonder, did I give them all they need in order to prepare them for the next phase? We lead by instructing and by modeling, and we prepare for a time when they'll take what we've given and they'll, they'll leave. The child leaves the home, the student leaves the school. They may be prepared, but we never are quite prepared for them to leave. Now, our passage today, we have a similar but different in some respects problem of preparation for departure. The teacher, in this case, is leaving his students. And he spent three years intensely preparing them for this particular time. And yet, up to the very last minute, Jesus is still working with his first followers, his apostles, to ensure that they have what they need for the next phase that he has for them. Now, today and next week are, as I said, the final two messages in our many months' journey through the Gospel of John. And we've been together for 16 months that we broke up with a number of months in between, but a total of 16 months Looking at these 21 chapters and we've seen in these now 20 and now 21 chapters, we've seen that John has developed a picture of who Jesus is. We've seen that John has shown us that Jesus is none other than God himself having come as man and that he's come on a mission to die to make payment for the sins of his people and to call a group of men out of the world and to his cause. Men who are going to take this good news now of who Jesus is and what Jesus did to a world that desperately needs it. Jesus has dropped hints along the way to these first of his followers that there is indeed going to come a time when he would be leaving them. In the final climactic events of what we call Holy Week. Jesus has begun to bring it all together in a rented upper room in Jerusalem. You may remember that chapters 13 through 17, all of the stuff in chapters 13 through 17 takes place on one night. All of the words that you read from chapters 13 through 16 were spoken by Jesus to these first followers to prepare them for his departure. Verses 18 and 19 are all about Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial on that very night, and then his execution the next day. Chapter 20 is about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his initial appearances as the living Lord. And then when you come to the end of chapter 20, which we saw last week, You see one of Jesus' followers, Thomas, coming to believe in who Jesus really is, acknowledging Jesus as Lord and God in verse 29 of John 20. And then John summarizes in verses 30 and 31 the entire, the purpose of the entire 20 chapters of his book. Look with me again at the last two verses of John 20. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, you might think then that the book could just end there. John has accomplished his purpose for writing to show that indeed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we have seen one in Thomas who has come to full faith in him as Lord and God through observing the signs that Jesus did that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus did many others, but these are written that you might do what Thomas did. And so the purpose has been done. Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen. He's ready to go, and yet there is a final chapter. There is a, a chapter 21. And you have this additional chapter. You find Jesus still teaching, still preparing his followers for the work that lay ahead. And Jesus has been busy then, when we come to chapter 21, for nearly six weeks, following his resurrection. He's appeared to his followers on several occasions. Two of them are recorded in chapter 20. And he's appeared over these many weeks after he's risen from the dead, to many other of his followers. One such occasion is recorded in Luke chapter 24. Many of you remember it. Jesus walked along a road with two of his followers on their way to a town called Emmaus. And the Bible tells us there that Jesus opened to them the resurrected Lord, opened to them the scriptures and showed them there all that the scriptures said concerning the Christ. And then you have Luke recording for us in Acts Chapter one and verse three, that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, many of us don't know that, but that is what the Bible teaches. Jesus rose, but he didn't immediately ascend to heaven. But rather, he had these many weeks where he showed himself to his apostles and to others through many convincing proofs showing that he was alive and still teaching up to the very last minute to prepare his followers for his now imminent departure. Jesus is preparing them to the very end. By promising what he did in chapters 13 through 16. That one is going to come after me. The comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. He will guide you into all truth. He will bring everything to your remembrance that I have said to you. He's promised that to them. In chapter 20, the Bible tells us he breathed on them and said, Receive now the Holy Spirit. And now in chapter 21... He's illustrating that even though he's going to be gone physically, they will always have his presence and his provision for the mission to which he's called them. The end of the book and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry are indeed near. But Jesus has some unfinished business to take care of, and that's why I've titled this message, Unfinished Business. Jesus had come to do his father's business, but he would not leave until all had been prepared for these men to carry out his work. We have an outline for you that's inserted in your program. And I invite you to follow along then as we look in this last chapter of the Gospel of John, today and next week. And we see Jesus to the very end preparing his followers to illustrate to them that he is indeed all they need. He will supply all that they require for the mission that he has for them in the coming days and years. Let's see together in verses 1 through 14 that Jesus is the source of their and our success. Verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus. Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Now at this moment, these first followers of Jesus had traveled 80 miles from Jerusalem up to Galilee, just as Jesus had told them to do. But as usual, Peter is the one who finds it difficult to just sit and wait. And so verse 3 tells us this. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Now, evening was the best time for them to fish. So at dusk, after gathering their provisions, the whole group left the shore and with a feeling that they were accustomed to, of ropes and hoisting the sail and casting and recasting the net. And everything was wonderful, the earth and the sky and the water and the wind and the hearty masculine camaraderie as they fished together. Everything's great except one thing. Verse 3 says this. So they went out and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. And so dawn begins to appear. And the disciples are tired. They failed in their fishing endeavor. They're heading for home. They may not have been thinking of Jesus, but unknown to them, Jesus was thinking about them. In fact, Jesus was watching them on the shore. Notice verse 4. Early in the morning. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Now, it might have been because of the fog that they morning fog that they didn't recognize Jesus. And Jesus asked them this question. Do you have any fish? And to their credit, they answer honestly. Generally. If a fisherman's doing well, he won't tell you because he doesn't want you to take his choice spot. If he's doing poorly, he doesn't want to admit it. Now, I've heard that about fishermen. I'm not a fisherman. I know we have some fishermen here, and I'm sure you're of the honest variety. I can relate to this more in other stuff like golf. When we go on our golf outing uh, the day before our men's retreat every year, We have a number of groups that are out on the course at the same time. And inevitably, we pass each other, one group that's on a hole that's adjacent to the hole we're on. And we'll always ask each other, so how are you doing? And remember, this is a competitive tournament we're in. So everyone lies. Everyone I have ever asked is doing great. Then finally, when we get at the end, we think everyone tells the truth and the true team, the best team wins which, just as a quick aside, was my team this past year. These men answered honestly, even though they were doing doing poorly. They had not caught anything. Verse 6 says this, Jesus said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the, full, the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Now, as usual, John is the one to recognize the miracle as coming from Jesus. But Peter is the first one to do something. He wanted to give the Lord a respectful greeting, so he threw on his outer garment. He swam to shore to greet Jesus. Now, do you remember a parallel to everything that's going on here? When they were first called to be Jesus' followers, what were they doing? They were fishing. And Jesus pointed out the the symbolism when he first called them to be his followers. He said, you are fishing, but I am going to make you fishers. Do you remember? You're going to be fishers of men. And Jesus has told them in chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. You are now going to, in earnest, begin the mission to which I have called you, to indeed be fishers of men. And to the very end, Jesus is making sure that they see the connection, that they know that they have been adequately prepared by their Lord and Savior to carry out the work to which he has called them there are a number of parallels between what's happening in John 21 and what happened when Jesus first called these men to be his followers. They were fishing. And in Luke chapter 5, this is what Luke tells us about their first encounter with Jesus. Jesus said to Simon, "'Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch.' Simon answered, "'Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets.'" This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now here you have an account in, I said, Luke, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, of Jesus giving them this large catch at the end of his ministry, the beginning of their ministry. And if you care to jot down what I mentioned earlier, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. Where indeed Jesus had a similar occasion for them to have no success in catching their fish. Jesus tells them what to do and they pull in fish. And there are parallels between John 21, Matthew 18 and Luke chapter 5, Mark chapter 1 as well. When Jesus first meets them, he shows them, you need me for everything that you're going to accomplish. And now at the end of his ministry, and the beginning of theirs, he illustrates that to them again. Jesus is the source of their success and our success as well. Apart from him, we can and they could do nothing. But through him, they could, did, and we can do nothing. Succeed. These fishermen are a picture of the church toiling on the restless seas of life. And they found it was Christ who brings the increase and that apart from him, they could do nothing. And they also found that his resources were sufficient for what he had called them to do. Whatever the catch, Jesus' resources are sufficient in order to pull in what he has for them. And John is quick to point out that the net did not break. And the story goes on now in verse 9 of John 21. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Let me just stop there for a second. Why 153? Well, there have been all sorts of interpretations throughout church history to try to come up with some numerical magic for 153. Here's why it's 153. There were 153 fish in the net. That's why it says that. That's it. You don't divide it by three. You don't divide it by seven and then add something to it. All sorts of people tried to find significance in 153. It just means a lot of big fish that they couldn't catch on their own, but now they have because they did what Jesus told them to do. And in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This is how now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So in sharp contrast to their own inability to provide food for themselves, Jesus had prepared a breakfast for them. And Jesus is reminding them, I always provide for my people. Hear this, friends. Jesus always provides for his people. He meets their physical needs and he serves them just as he did Before his crucifixion. And the disciples learned from the catch of fish. And from that breakfast meal. That we must always depend upon the Lord. To sustain us. And bring fruit to our efforts. He will provide. But like the disciples. We must obey. We must do what Jesus tells us to do. We live in an affluent society. You say it doesn't feel that way. But it still is. Despite 13% unemployment, despite the economic difficulties that we're having now, we still live in an affluent society. And because of that, it's common for people to develop a sense of self-sufficiency. We can depend on ourselves. We depend on our families. We depend on our ministries. But think of the presumption in that. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17, it is in God, it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. In Colossians chapter 1, of the Lord Jesus it said, by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. And notice this, and in Him all things hold together. Apart from Christ, they could and we cannot, they could not and we cannot, Do anything in terms of successful ministry. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. The bread that you have comes to you from the hand of your gracious God. And yet how often do we get up and begin our day without a thought about God? We trust ourselves. My talents my ability, my resources. Jesus told these men in John 15 and verse 5, we saw several weeks ago, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And so friends, the only way we'll ever succeed in serving our Lord is by being fishers of men. It's by obedience to Christ and with strength and the provision that He provides. He is the source of our success. We depend on him completely. And now as Jesus prepares them for what's going to happen in the days to come as he leaves, he not only reminds them that he is the source of their and our success, but he gives them a second thing that I have for you in the outline. He reminds them that he, Jesus, is to be the object of our affections. Look in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now you all know what's going on here. At the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has unfinished business. And one piece of unfinished business is the restoration of this fallen apostle. Peter had denied his Lord. How many times had he denied his Lord? Three. Why does Jesus ask three times, do you love me? He's denied him three times. And Jesus is giving a public restoration of this fallen apostle. Public, it's before the other apostles. They are there, but Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. Because Peter is the one who needs this restoration. Jesus is not going to leave this business unfinished. And so he speaks directly to Peter. Now think about what the other apostles had to have been thinking about Peter. Well, you know, Jesus is risen. He's shown himself to us a few times now. He's going to be leaving soon. Peter is always the guy to act first and speak first. We know Peter's going to seek to take the lead, but the truth is he's unreliable. He's already denied the Lord three times. And we're going to count on this guy? And so Jesus is making sure that not only does Peter know that he has been fully restored by his Lord, but that the other apostles know that he's been restored as well so that they can follow the leadership that Peter is indeed going to provide in the coming days. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, do you remember who it was that stood up and preached that first Christian sermon? None other than Peter. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are centered on Peter, as the leader of the apostolic band. And then beginning in chapter 13, it moves to the apostle Paul. And so Jesus restores him, restores him because he had denied the Lord three times. And Jesus gives him three questions in order to make the point. Now we need to learn some lessons out of this then. Those who love Jesus, as Peter did, sometimes fail. Peter was singled out in this passage because he had failed and he had failed publicly. The Lord had already met with Peter alone since his resurrection. He had already been restored privately, but now he's being restored publicly. He was already reconciled to his Lord. That's evident by how quickly he jumped in the water to greet him. But it's very a very poignant conversation in the presence of these other disciples. It's important, yes, for Peter, but it's important for them as well. Those who love Jesus sometimes fail, as Peter did. So Jesus asks him three times of his love, painfully reminding Peter and the other of Peter's and the others that were there of Peter's threefold denial just a few weeks earlier. This passage teaches us something else as well. Not only do Jesus followers Those who love him sometimes fail, but those who love him humbly face their failure. Now notice I said humbly. There are several elements in our passage that show it was our Lord's purpose to humble Peter. First, Jesus addressed Peter as Simon. When Jesus called Simon to follow him, he changed his name to Peter. The name Simon means weak. And the name Simon reminded Peter of his past and his weakness before Christ changed his life. And so Christ says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And Jesus asks, Do you truly love me more than these? More than what? More than who? There could be a number of things that Jesus is asking about. Do you, Simon, the one who is weak, the one whose life I have changed, the one who denied me, do you love me more than these? What does he mean? Well, Jesus is rustling up some fish. Do you love me more than your belly? Do you love me more than food, than stuff? Or do you love me more than, and we weren't there so we can't see Jesus motion with his hand, do you love me more than these, perhaps pointing to his boat and his fishing implements, do you love me more than your business? Or Peter, do you love me more than you love these guys? Remember the other disciples are there. I am quite confident, along with people who are much smarter than me, that Jesus could have meant any of those, but what he actually meant is this. Peter, do you love me really more than these guys love me? Because remember, Peter, you said you did. Even if everyone else denies you, I will still follow you. And now Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me more than everybody else does? And Peter has to remember that he had said that very thing. How these words from Matthew 18 that we read earlier must have haunted Peter. And now Jesus says, do you really love me more than these other disciples love me? He denied the Lord three times. The Lord asked three times. Talk about a humbling conversation on the beach that morning. But we learn from this that Peter humbly faced his failure. He had failed. He knew it. Christ knew it. The other disciples knew it. It was time to face up to it, and Peter did. Jesus' question was whether Peter truly loved him. Each of these three times, the question is put just a little bit differently, all with the same basic meaning. Peter, am I first in your affections? Am I first in your priority scheme, above all things? And so those who love Jesus fail. Those who love Jesus humbly face their failure. Here's a third thing, though. That those who love him find restoration after they have fallen. Jesus tells Peter, shepherd my sheep, take care of, feed those who belong to me. This is part of the mission of all who follow Christ. Our concern goes beyond our own interests to focus on the needs of others. And this was Jesus' command to Peter, and he gave it three times. Now, isn't it marvelous to consider that Peter was not shelved after his failure. There was still fruitful ministry for for Peter. All Christians fail. We fail the Lord in a thousand ways. We fail to obey the simple commands of Scripture. We deny our Lord when we're facing trials or temptation. We fail to carry out the Great Commission and take the gospel to the lost. We focus upon ourselves. We neglect the Lord. How often do we fail? There are two common, inappropriate responses, when, not if, we fail. Sometimes we just ignore it. How many people never honestly assess their lives, believing everything's okay, when in reality they've denied the, the Lord whom they claim to follow? When was the last time that you examined your heart? When was the last time you looked closely at your obedience to the crucified and risen Lord? Here's a second inappropriate response. Some folks become so overwhelmed by their failure that they give up. They say, what's the use? But we see in the model of Peter that there's forgiveness and restoration in Christ. If anyone could have given up, it was Peter. But Peter went on to become one of the great leaders of God's church. I was reminded this week in a class that I was able to take with Dr. McCune. We had Dr. McCune speak two weeks ago. He's now gone back to Florida to retire, so I audited the last class that he taught. Auditing is a great way to take a class. You just get to sit there and listen, but you don't have to do any work. And Dr. McCune made a statement during the class last week. He said, God has the ability, as the sovereign, all-knowing, omnipotent God, he has the ability to focus on His full attention as God on a single individual. Still focus his attention on everything else that's going on in his world. And simultaneously focus his full attention on this individual and that individual. Now that has great news associated with it. I'll share in a moment. It also has some very bad news associated. Because God's full attention is focused, his full wrath is focused on those who are in hell. But God's full love is focused on those who belong to him. And he is focusing his attention upon this man, Peter, to prepare him for the work that he's called him to. And every moment of every day, the God who restores the fallen can and does focus his full attention on you and on me. Thanks be to God. And so the question that they had for Peter, that Jesus had for Peter was, do you love me? And the question for us is, do we love the Lord? Do we really love him? If so, know that he will always forgive. He wants you to be restored to him. What a painful but loving thing for Peter to have his Lord publicly vindicate him. But that's what needed to happen to prepare him for his mission. Here's the third thing we see in this passage. Jesus is the source of our success. He is to be the object of our affection, but thirdly, he is the master of our lives. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, Peter, you dressed yourself, went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, but what about him? Okay, I'm going to have to give up everything for you. What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, that was following, that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Jesus pointedly tells Peter and us that he has a path for each of us to follow. The day came when Peter was martyred for his Lord, as he was fastened to the cross beam for crucifixion, Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord was crucified. Crucify me upside down. And according to tradition and historical accounts, that's how Peter died. In our passage, Jesus predicts this. And then he says to Peter, Peter, I have a path for you. You follow me. But Peter being Peter says, well, what about John? And Jesus replies essentially this, don't worry about everybody else. What I have planned for them is not your business. Your business is for you to follow me where I lead you. Follow me no matter what lies in store for you. And accept your path even if it differs from the path of others. That's hard for us, isn't it? Why do I, you might ask, have suffering and others do not? Why do I have this disease when I have so many things that I want to do for the Lord? Some have great suffering, some do not. Some long lives, some not. Some face the furnace of affliction, others do not. Some die a martyr's death. Others live long lives of fruitful service. Some grow up in affluence, others in poverty. Some have resources to be used in Christ's service. Others have little and they need much to serve Christ. But God has a path for each of us to follow. Our responsibility is not to concern ourselves with what others do or do not do. It is to follow Christ where he places us and where he leads us. And those who follow him, obey him and trust him with the outcome of their lives. It's a marvelous statement that John makes in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would. Do you all see verse 19? The kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter is going to bring glory to me in his death, in the fact of his death, and in the manner of his death. Jesus receives glory when we follow where he leads. God was glorified in Peter's death. God is glorified whenever we follow and serve him. And ultimately, that should be our goal, to glorify him. Our goal must not be to live our lives in comfortable service. Our goal must not be to go through the motions of religion. Our goal must be to glorify God in all we do. God is, friends, most glorified in us when we love him supremely and we obey him completely. The risen Christ is the sovereign Lord. We must depend on him completely because apart from him, we can't do anything. He is the source of our success. We must love him consistently, even though we sometimes fail. He is the object of our affections and we must follow him continually because he's the master of all of our days. He has a path for us to follow and is glorified when we do that very thing, when we follow him. So we end with these questions. Do you depend on Jesus for everything? Are you confident that you can accomplish your tasks on your own? If that's the case, friend, we need to re-examine and we need to repent and acknowledge that we depend upon Christ alone for any success and for all the provision that we need along the way. Do you depend upon him? Here's the second question. Is he the object of your affection? Do you love Christ? You may have failed, but there's fruitful service for you even after failure. If you love him, You will serve him. Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And then the final question is, are you following him wherever he leads? Are you content to accept the path that Christ has for you? Is the number one goal of your life to bring glory to him with your life? If not, trust him who knows what's best. And follow your sovereign Lord. Notice the take-home truth I have for you in the outline. Jesus is absolutely everything to his followers. He's the source of our success, the object of our affection. He is the master of our lives. And for those of us who have come to Jesus, we need to renew that commitment to him, thanking him for loving us, showing his love by giving himself for us, restoring us when we have fallen, And giving us fruitful ministry in his work in his world and for those of you that have not come to Jesus come to Jesus as Peter did come to Jesus as Thomas did as John did they recognized who they were and who he was who were they sinners in need of a Savior who is he he is the Savior God having come to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and so realize that you're a sinner Recognize what it is that Christ did for you on the cross. Repent of your sin. What that means is, Lord, I want to follow your way. I'm not going to go my way any longer. I don't know where your way is going to lead me, but I know your way is best and you're the master. So take my hand and lead me where you will. I repent of my sin. And then receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do I do that? What hoop do I have to jump through? You ask him. We're going to bow and pray, and you pray to ask Him to be your Savior. And commit your life to following Him. And He promises to make you His child. And to begin you on a path, a path of, as I prayed earlier in our service, a path of great joy, even in the midst of difficulty. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this look into the character of the Lord Jesus. In the pages of your word, we've been reminded of how our Lord loves his people. How our Lord makes sure that we have every provision that we need to carry out the work to which you have called us. We thank you for the careful precision with which your servant John has penned these words. And that we've been able to look over these many months now. To see how Jesus has come on a mission. He's called these men to that mission. And now by extension us to that same mission. And we've seen how Jesus makes sure that they and we have all we need. At every moment of every day. To carry out your work. I thank you Lord for this epilogue. That is John chapter 21. For the restoration of your fallen servant Peter. And how it reminds me of myself. And so many of us here are reminded of ourselves. Lord, we fail. We want to do the right thing, but the thing we want to do, we don't do, we say with the great Apostle Paul in Romans 7. But thank you, Lord God, that when, not if we sin, We can confess our sin and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for restoring us when we fall. Thank you for restoring Peter. Thank you for all that's resulted from the work that you did in his life and the foundation that you laid through these men. Thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of carrying on your work in our day. And Lord, I pray particularly now for anyone here who has not come to the Savior. I pray that in this sacred moment, they are doing that right now. They're opening their heart to you, and they are with their mouths, asking you to be their Savior and acknowledging you as their Lord. They're committing their lives to you. They want to follow you with every fiber of their being. And I thank you for what you're doing in hearts right now. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in those lives in the days and years ahead. Thank you for what you've done in my life, in our lives Thank you, Lord God, as we acknowledge you as indeed our sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.